Welcome to Saltier Politics. This week, Julie and I are talking about the current events that are happening from social talkers to political issues to the horrific fire that we saw at Notre Dame. So I'm so bummed about this fire. I actually um, kind of got teary-eyed when I saw it because you think about how much we go out of our way to preserve culture and preserve historic artifacts. And in fact, um, I don't know if you know this, but during World War II, the United States government actually decided not to bomb um, Kyoto in Japan because it was such a historic, historical um, city and had so many artifacts that we decided to preserve it. Conversely, Cologne in Germany was bombed. The cathedral there, which is about the same age as Notre Dame, was bombed, and it's been now 70 years or more, uh, and it's still not fully preserved, and it's still not fully recovered. So it kills me when I see this. I mean, it kills me when the Taliban blew up the Buddhas in Afghanistan. Um, so much culture uh, in Syria being destroyed because of war, but this wasn't even war. This was just an, uh, an act of God, not, not to make a pun out of what happened with the cathedral, but a fire that seemingly started out um, due to construction. And uh, religion aside, which, which is a huge aside, because obviously it's a religious institution and it's a religious house of worship, but the amount of history that's taken place in Notre Dame um, from Abelard and Heloise 900 years ago, 850 years ago, um, to Napoleon's coronation, to everything in between, um, to the Te Deum being sung uh, when World War I ended in 1918 in, in Notre Dame. It's just, it's, it's devastating. If you've ever been there, and have you you've been there, right? It's yes. just the scope of the magnificence of it um, is really hard to describe. And uh, it's just an amazing, amazing place. Um, and I'm not Catholic, I'm not even Christian, but I, I, I love it, in fact, I have family in France, um, which I think we've talked about before, and I used to spend a lot of time there, um, and still do, but um, I remember spending a summer living with my cousin in Paris um, after high school, and I didn't have much money, because um, I had just finished high school, and, and I was basically squatting for free in her apartment, which was wonderful for about two and a half months, but what was nice about it is, because I had no money, um, I basically wandered the streets um, and, and had nowhere to, sp I couldn't even really spend time at a cafe buying coffee because I was pretty broke. So what I would do is I would go to Notre Dame and I would just sit there in the pews because um, it was a place to get away from the heat and a place centrally located. It's the very heart of Paris. It's, it's actually kilometer zero from which all distances to Paris are, are measured. And I would sit there um, just as, a, as sort of a refuge, as a place of relaxation. And I was 18 at the time, so I wasn't overly reflective about life. but. The magnificence of it um, and, and, and the history that surrounds you and just the incredible significance that it has to Western history, religious and a-religious, is so incredible to me and I'm so relieved that they were able to, to save at least the main part of the church. Watching it, you don't think it's real. You think it's more of a movie, seeing something that historic because I... Things like that you almost take for granted because they've been there so long, but it just shows that you can't. You can't take it for granted. And, and I went through um, old pictures, and I, I had taken my son to Paris. Um, when I thought the whole cathedral was destroyed, I started going through old pictures, and I, and I found a picture of him from when he was two in his stroller um, that I snapped a photo of him in front of Notre Dame, and I was thinking, oh, my God, this child is going to grow up having no memory of this trip, because he was very young, and I've actually asked him, and he, in fact, does not have any memory of, of the trip. 
generations, this is almost 900 years old, um, the scope of it is just amazing as we talked about the breadth of the history. And so I hope they restore it. I hope they restore it in my lifetime um, to somewhat of its former glory. I, I think it will never be the same again, primarily because I actually read that they can't restore it to its former glory because the kinds of wood that they used um, to build the roof that burned down just doesn't exist anymore. I mean, the forests in France have been cut down over the last 850 years or however long it's been over the last centuries to such an extent that the, the trees just don't exist to, to recreate that particular roof. Um, so I would say to those people who are listening who've been there, you know what I'm talking about, and to those who have not been there, um, I hope this gives you some understanding of just exactly, it was unlike anything else. So on that sad note, let's move on. All right. Well, something that I thought was great this week was you saw Democrat Katie Porter, a representative from California, in an exchange with uh, CEO Jamie Dimon and how J.P. Morgan of J.P. Morgan. And really, this kind of questioning, I thought, was fantastic. And Julie, I thought we should do a dramatic reading of this exchange. I, I think we should. Um, are you going to be? I'll be. I'll be Kate? Katie. All right. I'll, I'll be. I'll be Jamie Dimon minus the many zeros in my bank account. But I'll do my best impression of Jamie Dimon. All right. I'm going to give a quick summary of what happened a little bit. So he's sitting there, and Rep. Katie goes, "Jamie Dimon, you're an expert on financial statements, and you run a 2.6 trillion dollar bank. I know you're good at numbers, and so I'd like to ask for your help on a problem." I went to monster.com and I found a job in my home, hometown of Irvine, California at J.P. Morgan Chase that pays $16.50 an hour. When you do the math on this uh, and you do the $16.50 out of 40 hours a week for 52 weeks a year, it comes out to an income of $35,070. So she crunches all the numbers about apartment, food, cell phone, just the basics to live on. And she lives in an apartment with the child and... A six-year-old. A, a six-year-old, and uh, after and she has after-school childcare because the bank is open during normal business hours, and that's three four hundred fifty dollars a month. That takes her down to negative five hundred sixty-seven dollars per month. So, my question for you, Mr. Diamond, is how should she manage this budget shortfall when she's working? full-time at your bank. So, you know, what Jamie Dimon does here, and this is what he says, he goes, I'd love to call her about her, about her, and have a conversation about her financial affairs and see who could be helpful, which is a, a great way to deflect, like, let's not talk about it, I'm going to take care of it. Um, but Rep. Katie wouldn't have any of that. See if you can find a way for her to live on less than the minimum that I've described. Uh, be helpful. Would you recommend that she take out a J.P. Morgan Chase credit card and run a deficit? Um, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Would you recommend that she overdraft at your bank and be charged overdraft fees? Mm, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Mr. Diamond, you know how to spend $31 million a year in salary, and you can't figure out how to make up a $567 a month shortfall? This is a budget problem you cannot solve? Mm, that number is a start. Is that generally a starter job? She is a starting employee. She has a six-year-old child. This is her first job. So you get those jobs out of high school. She may have my job one day. I love that kicker from Jamie Dimon. She may have my job one day. I'm, I'm going to venture to say that it's possible. Um, she could have his job one day. But until she has his job one day, she's got to um, support her kid. 
and she's got to um, put food on the table for herself and her child. And, and I think it makes sense also to, to point out that she shares a bedroom with her son or daughter, excuse me, her daughter. Um, they sleep together in the same room. Um, so uh, I know what people who are listening to this who don't agree with us would say. They would say, well, she can't, she shouldn't have a child if she can't support that child, um, says the party of, of pro-life. Um, but, you know, she, she does have a child and that child deserves to be able to have food um, and to certainly have aftercare um, because or daycare, which I can tell you is so obnoxiously expensive in this country that I know a lot of women who just think it's cheaper to not work so they can stay home with their kids than to work. Um, this woman obviously is a single mother, she has no choice. But, uh, you know, I love how, not just Jamie Dimon, but you see this all the time, Lloyd Blankfein, others. Um, God knows how many Goldman Sachs Treasury secretaries we've had. Um, uh, and they are very big on lecturing people about fiscal responsibility and very big about lecturing us about the macroeconomic state of our world, um, which is their right, um, as, as quote-unquote financial experts, but, but not so much about microeconomics. They cannot address a microeconomic issue like this. Microeconomics is Econ 101. This is an Econ 101 question. Right. Um, and Jamie Dimon, who runs one of the most profitable banks in the world, cannot answer a basic Econ 101 microeconomic question, which is how does somebody on an income, a starter salary income, uh, do this? And by the way, in terms of her moving up, at her job. I would say this to you, if her daughter is sick and cannot go to daycare, this woman will have to take days off. She has no choice. Whether she gets paid or not, I don't know. But she, she, if her daughter, um, if the daycare is closed, she has to stay home. I mean, right. it, it's very hard to move up in the world when you don't have support. And in the, in the differences too, for example, at work, a lot of my coworkers have children. I do not. So when my bosses can ask me, can you work the weekends? Can you go on this last minute trip? I can take these opportunities and it looks, I am a hard worker, but I also have, I have the luxury of not having a kid to take care of. And so I look much more motivated about my job and more into it than a lot of the parents do because again, I don't have the kid. So I also feel that this single mom here isn't able to maybe work those extra hours or take those other opportunities that could be available because she has a kid. True, and I will tell you as a single mom um, who had a kid, not because I had to, but because I really wanted to, um, I was able to do that because, and I'm able to have the life that I have and the career that I have, um, and have had the career that I've had since before he was born and, and continue to, uh, because I have an, an, a tremendous network of support. And so if I have to work late, which happens all the time, uh, when I was a fox and I had to basically travel around in the summer to go to conventions and to debates and all over the country, I, my son was taken care of. I didn't have to make a choice, right? Um, if, if now in the course of my job right now I have to go to Washington for the day or for the night or for a week or however long, um, I, I am able to do that. I have the luxury to do that. I venture to say that this woman, I don't know her personal situation, but probably most people don't. I mean, most people right. do not have the luxury that I have as a single mom to be able to do that where I'm able to advance my career. Um, but it's very hard, and I'm also curious about, and I don't mean to single out Jamie Dimon, because uh, I actually don't blame Jamie Dimon for uh, the disparity in his life and her life. I mean, he obviously worked very hard to get to where he is, and she's working quite hard to put food on the table for her daughter. But 
you know, what's interesting to me is I don't know what Jamie Dimon's family situation was like, but I would venture to say that if Jamie Dimon has children, um, I know Lloyd Blankfein at Goldman Sachs has children. I know that my old boss, John Corzine, um, the former chairman of, of Goldman Sachs, had children. And I can speak to that because John Corzine, who I know quite well, um, had the same job that Jamie Dimon has at, at, at J.P. Morgan. John Corzine was on a plane to Asia or all over the world um, more often than not. And he had three children. Um, his wife at the time, the mother of his kids, was able to take care of the kids. And he was able to work. And again, I don't begrudge him. Um, he came from nothing to rise to be the chairman of Goldman Sachs. But uh, what I find interesting about that is that a lot of these men, and it is men for the most part, have the luxury of somebody else caring for their kids, uh, their wives, or, or if they make enough money, their caregivers. Women don't, and especially single mothers, and I, I, I'm an exception to that, um, and I do, but, but most of these women don't. And I don't know what the solution to this is other than, and people are gonna say this is another government mandate, but I think it is such an important issue. You have to have almost universal childcare from, from birth to the age of kindergarten when kids start school. Um, because so many women are forced to drop out of the workforce and single mothers are in a horrible bind uh, because they have to work, but who's gonna take care of their kids and, and that affects their job prospects and their ability to move up in the world financially and, and from a professional standpoint. I, a quick question for you on just a political strategist standpoint. What the line of questioning that uh, Rep Katie Porter had here, what do you, if you were rep helping out a candidate, would you say this is something that should be emulated? Uh, no question. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I don't care what you think about her, has perfected the same line of questioning. Um, uh, I think it's very important to point out that there are real-life ramifications because what I think a lot of politicians do, and especially on the Hill, something happens to you, and I say this as somebody who worked on the Hill, something happens to you when you start working on the Hill um, as a politician or as a staffer. You start getting very in the weeds. Um, to show how smart you are. It's just like, speaking of Potomac fever, that's basically a side effect of Potomac fever. Um, <laughs> you feel like you have to start talking about abstract numbers, and a lot of normal people can't relate. I bet you that her constituents in Irvine, California, and frankly, people all over the country, including both of us sitting in New York City, are listening to this, and they're saying, wait a second, I can really relate to what this woman's saying. Um, People are in crazy debt, whether it's student loan debt, whether it's just credit card debt to sustain day-to-day -day living. Um, Childcare expenses, everybody can relate to that. I don't care who you are, and unless you're Jamie Dimon, uh, the 0.0001% of the world, everybody can relate to that. Every single person. I know so many women who've had to, as I said, quit their jobs and quit their careers. Um, because they had to make this, this horrible choice between advancing their own career and making sure that their kids were taken care of. And then you wait five or six years to go back in the workforce, and guess what? You've been leapfrogged by the Emilys of the world who don't have kids. Um, you know, Think about yourself as a millennial, and think about your, your friends who, who are starting to have kids now, and think about the fact that you both can have the same job if one of them takes off to go have a kid, comes back in five or six years. Um, you're going to be much higher, further along in your career than she is. So I think it's a great strategy. I had never heard of Katie Porter before this. I certainly have heard of her now, which is exactly what you want to be as a, as a politician. And uh, good for her. Really good for her.
I think it's great. And then Jamie Dimon, uh, again, don't mean to single him out, but I think any of these bank CEOs or anybody else who comes on the Hill now needs to prep for these sessions in ways they haven't prepped before. And, and now I'm putting on my, my crisis communications hat and something that I do for a living now and right, have done now, for many years. Yeah, if you were helping Jamie out. If I were helping Jamie Dimon out, I mean, it's not just Jamie Dimon. It's any of these guys who are expecting tough, um, tough hearings uh, in the House or the Senate. There's a whole different way you've got to prep now. Um, you almost have to game it out like debate prep. There is a better way for Jamie Dimon to have responded to this or to have anticipated this. Um, he should have come prepared. And, and again, I don't blame him because this is a new, I guess it's a somewhat new phenomenon. But I would have advised whoever's advising Jamie Dimon to uh, come prepared about what you're doing as a company to help the least among you. I don't know if JP, some big companies, and I, I can't speak for JP Morgan, have places where they could drop, there's child, there's child care, subsidized child care in the company. You could take your child and into the same building where you are, and some of these larger companies are doing that and have done that for a long time, um, and have subsidized child care to help these people along. Um, some companies have, have debt forgiveness or they help pay off student loans. I mean, whatever it is, um, some companies allow have a hundred percent shareholder, or have their companies a hundred percent of their employees become shareholders, which obviously helps their employees financially. I don't know if J.P. Morgan does any of that, but I think if they do, or if they do anything else to help their employees, that's the answer. The answer is not I have to think about that. The answer is you should think about what you are doing for the least among you, for the working class and, and middle class um, employees that you have. And come prepared, because guess what? This is not going to be the last time somebody like Jamie Dimon is going to be asked questions like this on the hot seat in front of Congress. I think that's fantastic advice for Thank both you. sides. Thank um, you. Uh, Jamie Dimon, I will send you an invoice. Yes. And so moving on to another badass woman would be the astrophysicist Katie Bowman, who helped create the algorithm or created the algorithm that, was, that allowed NASA to be able to take the picture of the first black hole. She's 29. Yeah, I'm 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 45. But I haven't I haven't done anything. I realized after reading this story. Well, it's amazing. It's I love it. It's I amazing. love it. But Julie, you are quite insightful to what happened to Katie after this incredible thing happened. What happened was once this the, this photo came out and she was allotted, uh, a lot of trolls online and especially the male trolls uh, were trying to discredit her and say that her coworker uh, was the one who mostly figured this out. And he and the coworker eventually came out on Twitter and was like, nope, she did most of the work. It was a team effort, but this was all her. So if you want to support me and, and take her down, this is not the place for it. Well, you know, as Barbie said a few decades ago, math is hard. So women really can't be good at math. <laughs> um, good for her. I love it. I mean, uh, there is a push and there has been a push for a long time to get more women involved in STEM. And I hope, or more girls involved in STEM, um, and, I, and I hope that schools, especially schools at a very young age, you know, first, second, third grade, when they're teaching science, use Katie as an example. Right. Um, because all the scientists that we know, Einstein, Newton, I mean, you think about all the big, the canon of, of famous scientists that are taught um, and that are household names, and there are not many, are all dead old white guys. Um, and here comes Katie Bauman, who is 29 years old, certainly a woman, uh, doing something that, that has never been done before. And I think that's fantastic. I really, really, really hope 
that this encourages more young girls to get interested in the sciences and, and use her as an example um, to, to help foster that. And I think also it's an example of how her coworker, the male, uh, reacted into what a real ally does. It's not just sit by and be like, no, it's just her. He came out and was like, no, this is not the platform on my Twitter to follow me because you guys want to discredit her. It was her. She did a great job and this is not the place for it. Something I think that stern is what an ally should be. But, you know, this this raises a larger question to me as we're talking about this just occurs to me and I'm sure this theory is going to get some pushback from people listening. But what is up with guys and I shouldn't say it's lately, but uh, I feel like it's, it's more pronounced lately maybe because of social media, of fearing that the greatness of the white male has passed. I'm talking to you Trump supporters. Um, and suddenly life is th- threatened. Life as we know it is threatened by women, by members of the LGBT community, by minorities that suddenly... Uh, you know, the canon, as I refer to it, of, of, of Western civilization, which has been shaped uh, largely historically by everybody, but I think the, the, the famous people tend to be the ones who are, as I said, um, old dead white guys. What, what is the issue with that? What, I don't understand what people are incredibly paranoid about. It's a large pie, and just because other people are getting a piece of the pie doesn't diminish you or what you can do. You, just um, have to, you like what women and minorities have had to do. You just have to work harder for, for it Yeah, now. and, you know, it's almost like this whole craziness about affirmative action that people talk about. Well, you know, if you're giving the spot to an African-American or a woman or whoever, um, you know, I'm not going to get it even though I'm just as deserving. Well, that's just not true. I mean, the reality is that historically... It's it's the minorities who've been discriminated against. I mean, have had quotas historically, whether it's it's people who are Jewish, people who are um, minorities. Now we're seeing Asians being discriminated against. With Harvard, there's a lawsuit. Um, I don't know if that's true, but it's up to the lawsuit to determine. So, uh, you know, I, as again, as the mother of <laughs> of somebody who's going to be an old white guy one day, hopefully. Um, I don't understand what it is, how we're not raising more men to just be proud of the accomplishments of women and not to think this is somehow diminishing from their experience. Like, this woman did it. Nobody else did it. I mean, other people helped her, but she's the primary person. Why not just give her her moment? You don't have too many women getting these moments. Right. I think they think they're losing the status quo and are reacting. Well, I mean, look... You discover a black hole. Um, you take a sorry. You take a photograph of a black hole. You'll get the glory. I mean, right. she's the one that did it. Nobody's telling you you can't do it. It just exactly. so happens that you guys didn't do it. She did it. Exactly. I'd, I'd love the credit for it too. Except you know what? I don't even know what a black hole really is. So, it, give credit where it's due, and stop feeling like people are somehow t- diminishing you and your demographic because you're praising a, a demographic that has been severely underrepresented historically. Um, throughout history on this issue and other issues as well. All right, Julie, let's move on to Julian Assange. This is a tough one. Why don't, um, let, what do you think? He's, he's been arrested, right? Correct. He has been, uh, detained by the British, um, and the United States is now trying to get him extradited here on, on a, on a very interesting count. I think it's not on 
the WikiLeaks stuff where he leaked stuff, where his supporters are saying, oh, it's because he's a journalist and the Pentagon Papers would, you know, would never have been published if you hadn't had brave journalists um, taking on this fight and publishing information that shouldn't be published. He actually is being extradited on a hacking charge where he himself apparently has allegedly hacked into something. So it's not that he's in the receipt of stolen information, it's that he is uh, the person who stole the information in this particular instance. Um, here's what I think about Julian Assange. I think Julian Assange, uh, and it remains to be seen as, as more information comes out, I think Julian Assange 100% collaborated with the Russians um, to release this um, information about John Podesta and Hillary Clinton's emails and, and anything he could to, to damage her. And okay, yeah, as a journalist, he might have had an agenda if you, in fact, you'd consider him a journalist. But I also think you can't use journalism as a shield to engage in behavior that is illegal. And if he were just a, uh, look, if, if Fox News or the New York Times or, or pick your news organization suddenly got a trove of emails like Hillary Clinton did, or about Hillary Clinton, um, and they published them, I think Fox News or the New York Times or the Washington Post or, or Breitbart or pick your, pick your organization, whatever you think their agenda is or is not, has the right to publish them. They had nothing to do with stealing them. They had nothing to do with the coordination of, of them. They just got them. Julian Assange is a different story. Julian Assange, and again, it remains to be seen whether this is true or not, I, I strongly believe um, collaborated with the Russians on a lot of this stuff, and that crosses the line from journalism to something much more nefarious. Right, so I would say, is there a way to prosecute Assange while not prosecuting the publications with which WikiLeaks did business with? Uh, well, that's the thing. I mean, they released it, and then the New I'll use the New York Times as one example. The New York Times reprinted it, um, or, or certainly covered it, uh, which is why I don't think you necessarily prosecute Assange for, as I said, the receipt of these documents, or the publication of these documents, you prosecute him as they are on a hacking charge, where he himself was a hacker, apparently. And then, I guess through discovery, it remains to be seen whether my theory is right, and it is only a theory. If I'm wrong, obviously, he should not be prosecuted at all. Um, but I think you need to ensure that he did not cross the line, as I said, from, from journalism to uh, coordination. Right. Otherwise, anybody who's a journalist or a blogger, you know, I'm, I'm not a journalist. And by the way, Twitter, I'm not a journalist. All these people who keep emailing me saying, you're not objective, what kind of journalist are you? I was never a journalist. I'm a pundit. I always have been. Um, and pundits uh, have an agenda. <laughs> That's how they work. Um, so I, what I don't understand is uh, there is a, there, again, if, you're, uh, if you have a blog, and any one of us can create a blog and call ourselves a journalist. Um, I don't think you need to be licensed to be a journalist, but I also think you should engage in yourself in shady behavior. And just being in receipt of something shady and publishing it is not shady behavior. What is shady is if you're actually coordinating, stealing it, or um, otherwise encouraging the theft of it. That's a different story. That is an absolutely different story. And it remains to be seen whether they can prove that Julian Assange did that or whether they even charge him with that. I think this will be interesting to see as it plays out. Yep, I agree. What we're salty about? Yeah. What are you salty about? Well, I'm salty about, did you hear about Aaron Schock at Coachella? He was seen making out with a guy. Okay. And he was the Republican congressman who 
came out against pretty much every single LGBTQ. Uh, color me shocked. No, po, sorry, no pun intended, actually. Really, no pun intended, but color, color me shocked that once again, we are seeing a little conservative hypocrisy on the issue right. of LGBT rights. Well, so his politics earned him a 0% approval rating from the Human Rights Campaign for his opposition to LGBTQ equality. And I, I am all for people experimenting and being with whomever they want. But the hypocrisy here makes me so mad. My theory is people who come out against LGBTQ and all this, who are most vehement against it, are the ones who are most afraid that they'll like it. Um, I am reminded of Kim Elman, um, who is the former Republican national chairman and in 2004 was instrumental in George W. Bush's re-election in Ohio, which had gay marriage or marriage equality as its boogeyman. And, and they think that Ohio went for Bush in large part because they stirred up the conservative base saying gay marriage is going to be legal um, if Bush is defeated, if John Kerry is elected. And Melman was an architect of that strategy. And then lo and behold, <laughs> he came out and he's gay. And I was sitting at a dinner with him once. Um, and uh, it was a dinner where uh, one of my friends who's gay was having a 40th birthday party, and he's friends with, with Melman. And many of the people, many of the guys at this dinner were also gay, and some of the guys were saying to me that there's almost like a, a meme out there that if you're in a gay club and you see Melman, avoid him because he needs to be punished for being so anti-LGBT in his capacity as the Republican national chairman. Um, Look, God bless Aaron Schock. I hope he's happy. First and foremost, let's just say this. If Aaron Schock is happy with a guy, we should all be happy for Aaron Schock. But right. maybe a little self-reflection, maybe a public apology. At least Melman came out, I think, at some point and said, oh, I was wrong about that. You know, easy to say after you're out of public life. But um, uh, right. I, I just, I, you know, that, that does make me salty. It actually makes it, me very salty. Right, and just a reminder, he voted against adding sexual orientation, gender identity, gender, and disability to the federal hate crime protections group, protections. He, he was against the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell and for the Defense of Marriage Act, which, as you remember, defined marriage as between a man and a woman. I do remember. I was actually around when they passed that in 1996, um, and I was appalled back then. But I... Um, I <sighs> I, I think about this and I think about people who still oppose marriage equality and not in a religious context because anybody who says, well, you know, I, I believe in the Bible. Well, nobody's forcing you to be a member of the clergy and marry somebody you don't want to marry. You oppose happiness. Yeah, but but you're you're so on the wrong side of history here. It's almost like being against, you know, loving versus Virginia, um, which which legalized interracial marriage. I mean, what do you care? Like, honestly, what do you care if Aaron Schock is with a guy or with a woman. Like, why is that even something that you care about? Why does Aaron Shaw care? Why does Aaron Shaw care? I mean, if you're Aaron Shaw, forget the fact that you're potentially experimenting or you're potentially gay. Uh, I don't think Aaron Shaw is at an age where he's experimenting anymore, but I'm not going to judge him for that. I will just say, um, if you're you're a, uh, and I say this as a straight woman, uh, you know, what, what do I care? I honestly, I, and what do you care who I am living with or, or married to or, or hooking up with? or Why does anybody care? Worry about your own life. Um, and Aaron Schock should worry about his life and nobody else's. And we should all worry about our own lives and not anybody else's. And Aaron Schock, of all people, 
should just stop judging people. I don't care that he's gay. I don't care that he's straight. I don't really care what, <laughs> what anybody does behind closed doors. I don't think anybody should either. And I think this issue has so far moved down the road. Um, Agreed. Of, yeah. It, it would just be like, I feel like if we saw AOC throwing trash out her window right after lauding the Green New Deal, it would be like the hypocrisy. It's like, uh, you know, or burning, just, or burning fossil fuels in her right. backyard. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so what, I, I don't. I don't. My so, salt won't end on this. So, Julie, what are what are your, you? Your salt, salt your salt should end on the this. Ocean. Yeah, you know what? Your salt should never end on this, and neither should mine, because this is a fundamental civil rights issue. It just is, and and anybody who opposes it in this day and age in 2019, get with the program. You are going to be looked upon, not even by future generations, in five years, as the way people looked on segregationists. Right. Um, crazy. Move on, move on with this issue, and anybody, and that means you, Aaron Schock, who's out of office now, but, uh, you know, and by the way, everybody who's still in office now, all these hip hypocrites, I don't even care if you're a hypocrite or not, you could be the straightest person on the planet, but if you oppose marriage equality, guess what, your kids are going to be embarrassed to mention your name one day, much like segregationist kids were embarrassed about them um, right. not too long ago, so just understand that. Um, what is making me salty this week? Is, well, a lot of things are making me salty. Um, I will say this. I will going back to the Notre Dame thing. The rush to judgment, and and I saw this guy in Tucker Carlson's show. And I don't uh, not that I was watching Tucker, um, but I but I saw this on, on Twitter. This clip, um, and you hear it all over the internet too. Immediately, because it was Holy Week and because it was Notre Dame, suddenly this rush to a two part meme. One is oh, obviously the Muslims did it. Um, and set, which of course there's no evidence for, uh, and it turns out not to be true. And the second part of the meme is, oh, well, it's because, you know, Paris, no go zones, and it's overrun by Muslims, and Notre Dame's in a Muslim part of the city. Well, first of all, Notre Dame is like in the most exclusive part of Paris. I promise you that unless you are a legacy old French person who's owned an apartment on the Ile de la Cité where, where Notre Dame is, chances are you, you probably, um, are not living there, um, and secondly, uh, the notion of the fact that we are automatically rushing to judgment on, on blaming Muslims for everything, um, but not recognizing that there have been a spate of black church burnings recently in this country. Right. Um, why are we not rushing to condemn all white people for that? Because it's dumb. Because whoever burned down those black churches in a hate crime is not representative of all white people, clearly. So why are we rushing to judgment on all Muslims? Which brings me to a separate but related note of Ilhan Omar, who said something that I think makes a lot of sense. And I don't, I don't agree with her on everything she said, but she said something that made a lot of sense. And now you've got, from everybody, from Donald Trump to the Twitter verse, going after her. She said, essentially, she was speaking to CARE, um, the Council on American Islamic Relations. And she said that some people did some things on 9-11, and now basically the entire Muslim community as being blamed for it, that all Muslims are being painted with a broad brush. And she's right. And everybody's saying, oh, some people did something. Come on. Everybody knows what she's talking about. Somebody, 19 guys and a lot more, hundreds more, who were planning it with them, um, who were Muslim, uh, blew up the World Trade Center. Does that mean that the world's one billion Muslims should be tarnished with that broad brush for every Muslim living in New York City or any Muslim living all over the country or all over the world? Of course not. And for Republicans to again exploit 9-11, and this means you, Dan Crenshaw, who's a, who's a 
congressman from Texas who was one of the first to jump on this on Twitter, um, who still hasn't sponsored the 9-11 Relief Act for, for victims um, who were impacted by 9-11 first responders, uh, has not become a co-sponsor of that act. It's just absurd. Right. Um, well, and every, just... everybody with an eye patch is an asshole now. Like, yeah, exactly. You know, like, that's what I'm going to be like, assume every dumb statement. Oh, they must have had an eye patch, like Crenshaw. Like, yeah. It's a, I mean, so it's so ridiculous. offensive. I mean, it's so offensive. And it goes back to my best friend, literally going back to eighth grade. Um, somebody who's like a sister to me. Um, I am Jewish. She is Muslim. Um, she's the godmother of my son. I mean, that's how close we are. Um, literally, I'm an only child, so she's like a sister to me. Um, I remember when 9-11 happened, she was living outside the country. She's working as a journalist, but her parents um, live in Princeton, and they have a, a, an Arabic-sounding last name. And uh, they got the spate of just awful death threats. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Her father felt compelled to put an American flag decal on his car to avoid um, being tarnished because he looked Middle Eastern. He does look Middle Eastern, and, and he has a Middle Eastern last name. You know, that's just absurd. That's awful. And I get what Ilhan Omar was saying, and it's part and parcel of this whole, oh, Notre Dame obviously must have been raised to the ground by Muslims. Come on, give me a break. It's just, it's so offensive. Uh, think about what you're saying. I mean, think about what you're saying. Every time there's a school shooting by some teenager, all teenagers obviously are mass murderers. Every time a black church is attacked, oh, obviously, you know, whites, everybody's a white supremacist. Um, every time a white guy incel loner decides he's going to raise, you know, gun somebody down in a movie theater, oh, it must be because all white men are awful. I mean, come on. You're, why is it only Muslims that are tarnished with this broad brush? There's a billion Muslims in the world. Don't you think most of them are good and decent people? And you're taking, extrapolating a very small core of these people and, and, and attributing all the ills of the world to them. It's just appalling. It makes me more than salty. It makes me disgusted. It makes me mad. And it makes me mad that the President of the United States is the one pushing the stupid meme. Really. Right. It, it's because of, and he hasn't even apologized or taken it down or anything yet. So. No, and, and you know, I, I love how all of a sudden Donald Trump is this great defender of 9-11. Uh, old enough to remember, again... <laughs> Um, when 9-11, when, when, when the World Trade Center came down and Donald Trump boasted that he now has the tallest building in lower Manhattan because, you know, his 40 Wall Street or whatever his number of Wall Street building was, was now the tallest building in, in lower Manhattan. That's his response to 9-11. Um, this is not somebody who showed any great empathy towards the victims of 9-11. This is not somebody who's pushing Republicans in Congress to, to pass legislation that would help first responders who are now dying because of the debris they inhaled or very sick because of the debris they inhaled after working in the pit um, after 9-11. I don't know where he was during 9-11. Um, I know where I was, uh, which was on the Hill, watching uh, the Pentagon go up in smoke, um, worried that another plane we were told was coming for us, um, which it mercifully didn't. But um, I got to tell you, just... Leave 9-11 alone, leave Notre Dame alone on this issue, and stop with the crazy memes. Nobody's out to get you because of their holistic demographic that they belong to. There are people who are out to get you who are bad guys, and they could be white, and they can, bad women could be white, could be black, could be Muslim, could be Jewish, could be anything. Um, 
and I might add again, in this country, we've had a lot more to fear from white supremacist um, threats statistically than from any Muslim threats. Um, and, and that's just a fact. That's not me making it up. That's, that's crime statistics right there. So that's what's making me salty. What's making you happy this week? Well, Julie, we can't talk about it because you can't see Game of Thrones yet. But I can't. You're, you're, you're catching someone up on it. Where, where have you left off? Oh, God. So this is killing me because I, of course, have I've seen all of Game of Thrones. But as I said, um, I promised somebody that we have been watching. He and I have been watching Game of Thrones um, for the last few months from, from scratch. He's never seen it. And so we are now, we just last night got done with season five, right? Jon Snow has just been killed. Um, so I am two seasons behind. It's okay because it's actually great research that you're doing because what I can tell you is a lot of the scenes from the current episodes are essentially shot by shot emulating earlier Oh, really? Yep, so that'll be good. Well, ask me anything about previous episodes, because I have to say, it's actually been great to watch it again back-to-back, because I forgot about a lot of stuff. Was there there a character you've had an opinion about that you are kind of changing through seeing again and not jumping to judgment, or or maybe become more staunch in your Well, as we know, I was always Team Cersei, um, and I remain so today. I love her. Um, You know who I love? This time around, and I kind of wasn't paying much attention to him the first time around, and, uh, and I'm a dope because he's such a great character, Bronn. Really? Bronn of the Blackwater. Bronn is hilarious. Um, Bronn's like, you know, this fatalistic great guy, um, and I really like him, and I'm glad that he's around. What I found interesting this time around is that um, Ramsey Bolton, um, and maybe because I'm immune to the horror of Ramsey Bolton, does not seem as... as, as uh, his, his torture of Sansa is not as long um, as I thought it was the first time around. The first time around, I thought it just last, lasted forever. The Theon Greyjoy was weak for much longer than, than he was. But in reality, um, his storyline kind of moves quickly. But that's maybe because I actually just have watched these all back to back. Like, I feel like Joffrey just died and, and, and Ramsay Bolton showed up to, to be the new villain. And now, after last night, Sansa's escaped. And so, you know, that's where we are. But I can't wait to watch. But I'm glad it's making you happy. I know. I mean, I'm enjoying it. And I will be enjoying your reaction to when you do finally watch it. I know. I got to. This is like, I know. It's it's torture. I look forward to that day you come in and we're doing the pod. You're like, guess what? I know. It's going to be like. time to talk about it. 2021. Yeah. They'll be like, guess what? what? I finally watched it. I finally watched it. Roll back. I know. We're (laughs) going to be do a TBT to Game of Thrones. I'm trying to think what's making me happy. I mean, a lot of things are making me happy. You know what's making me happy? Again, I'm so obsessed with this Notre Dame thing. It's making me happy that it was saved. I was so worried it was going to be totally eradicated. Um, it's almost like a miracle, and I'm saying that as somebody who's not religious, but, I mean, they, they, they saved the crown of thorns. They saved, you know, a fragment of the true cross, um, if you believe that that's what it is. Um, you know, they saved uh, so much good stuff. Uh, they saved certainly the altar and, and, and um, the, the, famous, the famous windows, the rose windows, the famous statue of the Virgin Mary cradling um, Jesus after he was taken down from the cross. I mean, so many amazing, wonderful things. And I'm just relieved because at one point I was, honestly, that's all I was focused on the other day of just having a complete breakdown that this thing was going to go up in flames and, and just the massive history of it. It was, it was killing me. And, and we're seeing a lot of altruism. You're seeing 
a lot of uh, Selma Hayek's husband. He's offering a hundred million dollars. Yeah, you know why? Rebuild it. He's basically avoided paying taxes in France all these years, so oh. he can afford to. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Um, no, you've got a lot of things. What I find interesting is the Trump administration is sending money um, for for Notre Dame, and I think it's fantastic. But how about sending some more to Puerto Rico? Wait, also, yeah, we have a national emergency happening here, which he's calling the border, but that's not a real emergency. So, yeah, look, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad that we're doing that. I'm not I'm not um, saying that we shouldn't, but um, I find it very interesting what we're choosing to spend money on and what we're choosing not to spend money on, and, and some of our own people are also. In dire straits. Again, I'm I'm not blaming him for spending it. Um, I'm all for it. I think it's a, it's a international treasure, not just a French treasure, but it's something that belongs to all of us. Um, and again, in a very a-religious sense. Uh, and I'm glad that we're spending money to help. But I also think that it's maybe time to spend some money. I mean, Puerto Rico is still a disaster, right. obviously. And we're entering hurricane season. <laughs> Once again, we are entering hurricane season, which you know about because you're from Florida, land of the hurricane. So, yeah, exactly. So we have, we'll have a lot to talk about. Oh, if people are wondering, we are taping this uh, the day before the Mueller report comes out. Yeah. So uh, it's Wednesday and it's coming out tomorrow, Thursday. You probably will be listening to this the day the Mueller report comes out. So we will do a little special um, episode in the next couple of days after we've had a chance to digest the Mueller report. But the reason we're not talking about it is because uh, we have not yet read it, nor do I think it's a good idea to rush to judgment uh, the first day that we read it because I think it's very important to be able to absorb it and to really understand what we read, what it means, what was redacted. How much of this do you think is going to be redacted? What's your best guess? Oh, I'd say, I'd say it's going to be, you're going to, it's going to look cartoonish. You think so? I'm going to say it's going to be a third, a quarter to a third redacted. I don't think it's going to be half or more, but I'm going to say a quarter to a third redacted, which is huge. It's a huge, 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 Amount, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe William Barr will surprise all of us. The man who has been helping Republican presidents cover up since Iran Contra. Maybe he will finally have that come to Jesus moment. Yeah, doubtful. I'm gonna during Holy Week that we've all we all hope he will have. I'm gonna bring an extra salt shaker for that one. (laughs) Sounds good. Everybody have a great week. Bye.